Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 242, and I am back from the road. I'm back from Iceland. The Honduras trip this summer was really special, but this reminded me of why I travel. It felt kind of similar to backpacking through Asia and the experiences that I had there. It really felt like being back on the road. There were moments of great physical beauty because Iceland has an incredible varying landscape. You know, there are like what feels like oceans of lava rock that are just barren and kind of jagged. And that's juxtaposed against really lush green cliffs. There's black sand and pebbles and rock beaches. There are harbors with these like really brightly colored homes that all these diverse colors. They're really incredibly powerful waterfalls, some that are very high up. And those are crisscrossed with with rainbows. There's a, we hiked a glacier. I mean, really beautiful landscape, but we also had moments of, of beauty between friends. We learned a lot. We stayed in a home with travelers, essentially. It's high season in Iceland, and in high season, there are more jobs, there's more tourism. I think that also kind of coincides with people starting to travel more due to people being vaccinated. So there was actually just a crush of people who got to the airport outside of Reykjavik when we did like 6 a.m. It was honestly one of the craziest airport scenes I've ever seen. But the people that we stayed with were workers and people who are immigrants. And so they were able to tell us about some of the things kind of looking behind the curtain that you wouldn't see if you were just traveling as a tourist or for a short amount of time. We got to learn a lot and countries are complex and they become more complex the more that you know. We were able to talk to a really interesting gentleman who's working on like a spit test COVID vaccine. He's kind of a genius and he can read a thousand words a minute. And we stayed at his home and he had this really cool VR setup and a crazy dog. And he told us about whale meat. We met chefs. We met people who worked in the restaurant industry and in bars. We met some great people from the States who were on the road. There were some tough times. As usual, my stomach reared its ugly head. I'm not sure if you listen to all these episodes and you think, man, I'd like to travel with him. I'm actually not an easy person to travel with. Typically, you'd want to travel with people who don't have issues. And I don't really have issues in terms of like, oh, I don't want to do that thing. But I'm always having stomach issues on the road. And so that makes me kind of like whiny, I guess, at times. And we also, I, I struggled with the podcast pretty greatly. I had, was ghosted. I had somebody cancel right before it. I had somebody not show up. But that's all part of this, right? I mean, it's part of traveling. Not every moment is going to be great. I came back from this trip. I'm like lean and strong. My legs feel really strong. 
because I was carrying, we were backpacking, carrying our heavy packs. We hiked a ton, some amazing, amazing hikes. One of my favorite hikes that I've ever done that I'll talk about in just a little bit. But I only recorded one episode or one conversation really, and it was a quick one. So that will be in here and hopefully I can follow this up with some people that I met that I might do remote recordings with. So I'm not gonna tell you all about everything that we did in Iceland in this episode. I'm gonna stick to the town that we were in for a majority of it called Stikisholmer and the peninsula, Snefilis Peninsula. I'm probably ruining these names, I'm really sorry. I'm gonna struggle with all the Icelandic pronunciation that you're going to hear throughout this episode. But we went to Stikisholmer because my partner has a friend who lives there. And we were able to stay there and that's how we met so many wonderful people because she just, her energy just attracts wonderful people. Now, we were in Reykjavik. Because we were in Honduras and then I was in what? Maryland and Pennsylvania and we were running around this summer, we didn't prepare so well. And Reykjavik was out of cars. You kind of have to rent a car in Iceland to do the Golden Circle. There are buses for like half of the circle or like a third of the circle. But after that, you really need a car and you kind of need a car anyway. The bus system is good in the cities, but they don't always run from every place or to every place that you need to go. So we were trying to get to Stikishomer and we needed to take a bus to a town called Borgenes and then catch another bus. We did take a bus to Borgenes and then there were no more buses. So what are you going to do? We had to hitch. It's actually kind of part of the culture there. Because buses are a little spotty depending on the day and because it's such a safe place and there's so many people who are there to hike or to snowboard or to see the great beauty, there's a lot of travelers on the road. And so it, hitching's kind of part of the culture. And we were lucky that we were only out there for about a half hour before a solo traveler came by who had rented a car and she was just driving. That was her plan for the day, which I love. She was from the Netherlands and she was like, I'm just driving the peninsula today. I don't know where I'm going. I saw you too. You're actually the second pair I've picked up before I came to Iceland. I had never picked up hitchhikers before, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you too. And she told us all about her travels and her trips. And we told her all about ours. And it felt like a moment on the road. It was really beautiful. And she dropped us at the exact house we needed to be at. So thank, thank you so much for doing that. It was a, a lifesaver on that day. And we, we made it to Stikishomer. Now there are these almost like neon colored green cliffs above the water there. And the very first night we were there, we got together with my partner's friend and we walked the cliffs. And there are these birds that kind of dive bomb you because they think that you're going after their eggs and their babies. And you're like kind of ducking down, covering your head. There's these lush green hills. It's so beautiful. The sun wasn't setting till about eh, somewhere between like 11 and 12 p.m. And when it does set, it takes forever. So the sun sets so long and it just kind of hangs there in the sky. And so the sky is just illuminated and it's beautiful. And we're sitting on these cliffs just talking about life and having a beer. And 
the person who had been hosting us, she's very seasoned in her travels. And she said, as the older I get, the more I just want to be around people I love and have these kind of moments. And it made me think of the Bourdain documentary and when he's talking to Iggy Pop and he's like, what, what still gets you jazzed up? What gets you excited? And Iggy Pop's like, maybe this doesn't sound so cool, but just being with people that I love. It reminded me of that. And from that viewpoint, you're looking out at the ocean. There's no one else around. It's a small fishing village. And there are people that go there to travel. There's an important ferry there that can take you to the West Fjords. But where we were walking, no one. There were sheep (laughs) and there were birds, but we were up there alone looking out at the ocean. Oh, it was really beautiful. Now, from where we were, we took a bunch of different trips around the peninsula to do a lot of things. Waterfall hikes. My favorite was Gleemore. Oh man, I think in total this was like walking 7k for the day. But it's straight up and each vantage point you get, which like kind of lookout point, is like more beautiful than the next one. At one point you're higher than the birds that are swarming below you. The waterfall so powerful and loud and there are, are rainbows cutting through it. It This is corny, I know, but it's almost like, like a scene from Jurassic Park or something. And when you get to the very top, you're at the source of the waterfall and you have to cross it. But now that you're at the top, it's chilly up there. And so everybody crosses and takes their boots off and you walk through this river. And of course we picked the thickest point to cross. I don't know why we didn't pick a more narrow point. And one of us fell and one of us kind of hurt our feet. But it was incredible. It was freezing cold water just to, to walk across with your pack and your boots in your hand. I've done a lot of waterfalls, but I haven't had to do that. And so that felt really cool and really special. And when you're up there, you can see this varied landscape. You can see all the way to the ocean. You can see lava rock and you can see lush green and then you can see the ocean. Oh, it's it's so beautiful. We went to a cave and a lot of the landscape comes with uh, Norse mythology and the sagas. And so this cave was said to have been made by a troll who like had sex with the mountain and it made this cave. But we went into the cave and the air is just instantly like thick and moist and there's green moss that's so vibrant all around you. And the top of this cave is kind of punched out so you can see the sky and you can just see mist twirling around you. And you can climb up into the water and the cave just keeps going back and back and back. And I climbed a bit, but I got to a point where I was like, okay, no health insurance. If I slip on this, I'm in big trouble. We went to a beach where you can see seals. We didn't see seals, but there was a beached whale on the beach. I didn't post any pictures of this. I thought, I don't know if that's in bad taste or something, but it was in a state of decomposition. And so it was speckled with these wild looking colors. And I believe it was, oh, somebody told me, I think a sperm whale. And someone had come along and removed its lower jaw. Someone explained to me that that's because the teeth of this particular whale are particularly valuable. And so it was sad seeing this, but then you think, okay, in a way this is the circle of life, I guess. 
but I don't know. That was an experience. It felt really weird. Weird. I've never seen something like that. It was. It was enormous. Pools are a big part of the culture in Iceland. A really big part. Every town's got its public pool, and the pools will also have hot tubs that are geothermally heated, and they're called hot pots. Kind of like uh, when you go and get hot pot in New York City, the food. But these are what I guess we would call hot tubs. And that was really cool. Just to, I don't know, to have an activity of a, of a public pool that's not super crowded, like a pool might be here in, uh, in Brooklyn, but also clean and just part of the culture. We went to one particular one that was free in a town on the peninsula called Arcanus. And they also have a shipwreck nearby and two wonderful lighthouses that you can go see. But that hot pot in particular was really cool because it's overlooking the ocean. So what you do is you get into the hot pot, you start sweating, it feels good. You get out and you go into this freezing cold ocean. Oh my God, could not feel anything in the lower half of my body. I did like two minutes. One of our friends can do 10, which I thought was incredible. And then there was this guy, this Icelandic guy out there who was out there for a solid half hour in the ocean. Just built, <laughs> built differently than me. It's a really, really, really cool peninsula. If you're going to Iceland, you can't miss it. On our final night, we went to a restaurant and good lord I'm so sorry I'm going to butcher this name but Shavar Pakhusid sorry if I really ruined that but one of our friends is a chef there and one of our friends a couple of our friends work there and I'm hopefully going to be talking with the owner it unbelievable I don't know how to explain it like the muscles were so so good and we had so much food. They just kept bringing it out. They spoiled us. And you think of great food cities. Like, I'm spoiled here in New York. Or Tokyo. Or Kuala Lumpur. Places where you'd expect to just have, like, a pleasurable food experience. Here in this small fishing village, I didn't expect that. No knock on them. And I love seafood, and I expected to have some good seafood. But this was one of the best meals I think I've ever had. Incredible. What did we have besides the mussels? Uh, cod cheeks. Cod confit. Don't even really know what that is, but so good. Uh, incredible beetroots and bok choy. Whole oh, fresh sourdough bread. Oh, that was the theme of this trip was the sourdough bread, man. So good. And that night, I don't know, we were calling it the last supper. It was the last night to be with our friends and have some beers and just be spoiled and laugh and talk. It was really great. Now, food in Iceland. Iceland has a lot of interesting things. Salt cod is a big deal. Here in the States, if we're going on a road trip in a car, a lot of us will eat jerky, beef jerky. I'll have salt cod there, and it is a little stinky, but it's good. And I ate whale for the first time. In particular, you can head over to my 
Instagram or my YouTube and see me have a slice of whale blubber. That was, that was a first. But I knew that I wanted to try the fermented shark. I had heard about it. Anthony Bourdain had said it was the most vile thing he'd eaten. I have some friends who have eaten it. And I wanted to try it. A couple episodes back, if you listen to Dr. Bill Schindler, he talks about being in Iceland and having it. And so I found a place on the peninsula. It's a shark museum in a town called, oh boy, here we go, Tim, Bjornarhofen, which is tiny, 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 tiny. There's a couple farms there. There is a church. It's like a black colored church, which is really interesting to see. And there's the shark museum. And a lot of people do travel there for the shark museum. There's a beautiful room where they do information and tours of a sort. And the person who I interviewed is you're going to hear in just a little bit. His grandfather's original boat is in this museum. And there are shark jaws. There's there's an eagle in there, a stuffed eagle and stuffed seals and all sorts of historical fishing tools. It's a really cool place to be. And so I went and I talked to Christian Hildebrandsen. We were chatting a bit over email and I kind of just showed up. It was right before they were closing. So this conversation is quick. Uh, I don't know how prepared either of us were. We did this kind of impromptu, but it's fascinating. And he knows a whole lot about these sharks that they use and that they cure and ferment. And so that's who you're going to hear in just a couple minutes here. But after recording, I was able to try the fermented shark. And it is interesting. (laughs) It's not really what I thought. Um, I had heard, and he even described it as a blue cheese taste. I saw it more as kind of like a, almost like a rubbery, like lunch meat consistency and flavor. So there's this rye bread that they make in Iceland. And I believe it's actually like put underground and the geothermal heat is used to kind of cook it and bake it. And it's thick, it's really thick and dense. It's almost like eating cake or like like a pumpkin bread or a banana bread type of consistency. So it's not like a slice of like rye bread toast that you'd think maybe here in the States does kind of have that flavor, but it's a bit more cakey. It is delicious. It's so good. We kept having it slabber on some wonderful Icelandic butter. Oh God, so good. So he recommended to me that I have my first piece of fermented shark uh, kind of toothpicked through a little tiny piece of that rye bread. And the rye bread is a strong flavor, so it does mask it a bit and it does go down easier. And then I had a piece without it. And it, oh, it's, it's like, yeah, it's like lunch meat, kind of. Now, I was kind of burping up the flavor for the next hour or so, and that wasn't great on the back end. But it was a positive experience, and I'm really glad that I did it. I don't know that I would eat a lot of it, and he even will let you know in this episode that you maybe can't eat a lot of it because it's not good for your system. 
But that was interesting and I was able to check off one of my many goals for my trip to Iceland. Okay, I think that's probably enough blabbering for now, right? If you go to the description for this episode and the player that you're listening to it in, you'll find a link to the Shark Museum's website and to their Facebook account. Again, the gentleman that I spoke with that you are about to hear is Christian Hildebrandsen, and he is a member of the family that runs the Shark Museum and cures this fermented shark, and they've been doing it for generations. It's really fascinating stuff. All right, folks, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christian. Signing off. First of all, thank you for having me here. Uh, one of the, the main things that I knew I needed to do when I came to Iceland was to uh, learn about and to eventually try the fermented shark. So thank you for hosting me here. I appreciate oh, it's it. great to have you. So you grew up in Iceland, obviously. Yes. Born and, and raised. Right here. At this farm, yes. Okay, and we are on the... <laughs> I'm so sorry for my pronunciations, but the Sniffelnes Peninsula. Close enough. <laughs> okay. Sniffelsnes. <laughs> okay. I did terribly. Sniffelsnes. Okay, cool. Thank you for not uh, getting upset with me for that. <laughs> no, no. I know the Icelandic words can, well, they can be hard for many. Yeah. Now, this is a family business that goes back m- multiple generations? Yes. Like... Well, this business in its form that it's now, like the shark production and the museum, like it was founded by my father, but my ancestors have been involved in the shark business for maybe 400 years. Whoa, you can trace it back that far. Well, here in Iceland, it's it's very easy to trace back your family. (laughs) Okay, that's true. Very small population, right? Yes, and good records throughout the centuries. Isn't there actually like a phone application where you can sort of track your family genealogy. That's right, yes. It's very accessible, like all of the Icelanders in, well, in previous records. Ah, very cool. Like I can trace my, my family, well, back to a settler here, what, well, 1,200 years ago. Really? Yes. Well, that's but, incredible. But sure, that far back, everyone is related. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now... How important have sharks been to Iceland? Like this is a a business and a trade that goes back a very long time. Yes. Like there are like unclear records about it being fished in the ninth century, but it's like it became a serious business in the 14th century. I see. Now the shark industry, it, wasn't necessarily what we're talking about here with fermented shark, right? At the time, like going back to what you were just talking about? Yeah, in the beginning, it was fished for its liver. Liver? Yeah. They would make oil out out of it. It was exported to major cities in Europe for street lamps. Oh, the fat. Yeah. Ah, would they use the rest of the shark? Well, not in the beginning. Because the meat is highly poisonous fresh. So it has to go through this six-month process that we do here. 
to make the meat eatable. Mm. And wow, I assume many people lost their life in trial and error throughout the centuries. That's incredible. And it's poisonous because of the ammonia content? Technically, yeah. Since like the biology of sharks, like they're so different. They're so just unrelated to everything that is normal to us. Mm. Like you see the common cod is more related to us than sharks. Wow. So sharks in the evolution, well, they go their own way well, 400 million years ago. So they have been developing just on their own. Like they have no bones and only cartilage skeleton. And so, and also they have no urea system. Their urea just, just goes to the body and then eventually out through the skin. So you can imagine that's not so good for us. Right. But actually it's not so good for them either since urea is like bad for their proteins. So sharks have this chemical called the trimethylamine oxide. That's like 100 times more toxic to us than urea. But that like protects the proteins and counters the urea in your body. This makes all sharks at least somewhat toxic. Oh. Those two chemicals, they're like always in a balance. For many sharks, it's so low, it's harmless to us. But the Greenland shark, that's the shark that we use here in the native shark to Iceland. It has those two in extremely high levels because together in high level, they work as an antifreeze. Yep. So the Greenland shark then is the most common shark in these waters, I guess, and maybe most dominant? Yes, by far. Okay. It's the only shark that lives this far north in the, in the Atlantic. Okay, so that's... Super interesting because I guess then, like you were saying at first, the meat people attempted to eat the meat and then through trial and error were dying because of the toxicity. Yes. Um, so at some point, I guess somebody figured out through this process of curing it, you can transform it. Yeah, that happened in the 16th century. And like I mentioned earlier, we started to visit in a for reals in the 14th century. So we have this 200 year gap where who knows what happened there? Like if it was a lucky accident, trial and error. And there are like some historians who wonder like in the previous centuries, people that died suspiciously and witchcraft was blamed. Oh yeah. Maybe those poor people just ate fresh shark meat. That is really wild. Because yeah. to eat a lot of this f fresh meat, in like it's a very horrific death. And sure, if I was there 500 years ago and would witness something like that, I would think it was witchcraft rather than diet. Wow. So what is the actual process that you have to do to make sure that the skin is no longer toxic? Well, the first thing we do is to ferment it. We cut, we slice the, the shark up into about 10 kilo pieces. 
And in the past, the meat was buried underground. But nowadays, we put it in, in boxes. We have one of those inside our museum that like shows it like uh, we are like replicating the area, well, the environment, like it was buried. It, the box has those holes in it, so oxygen can get in and the liquids can escape out. In the past, it was buried most commonly in rough rocks. Then it stays there for circa six weeks and absolutely nothing is added to the meat. But the lactobacteria, it's a bacteria that is in the meat. And when that bacteria gets this environment, it will like take oxygen from the outside and break down those toxics and convert them. And also, like by doing that, it raises the pH level so extremely high in the meat that no harming bacteria can survive in it. So this meat, physically, it can not rot. How do you know when the process is complete? Well, by experience. <laughs> like we have no formal measurements or something like that. Like we basically just time it and, and smell it. And like we have basically a funny, funny saying, like when it smells bad enough, we say it smells good. <laughs> okay, that's wild. Now I would imagine, I know a little bit about salt cod and, and how and important that was. Be, before we jump, yeah. can we jump back Oh yeah, a of bit? course. Because <laughs> like I was explaining the fermentation, but after the fermentation, then we dry the meat. Ah, I see. It will hang to dry for like three or four months. And during that time, those who convert the toxics, they will evaporate. So is there a facility where they dry or is it out, out in the open air? Well, it's a facility, yeah. It's a, we have a drying house. And it's, well, I would not, not call it open air, but it's basically a building with no walls. <laughs> okay. Um, and after that point, it dries, it's ready to consume? Yes. Very interesting. Uh, what I was going to say was I know a little bit about salt cod and what an important industry that was even to North America and to Canada uh, before refrigeration. Mm -hmm. I would imagine maybe then this too is important because once it's fermented, can it keep for a while? Well, yes, it can be kept for a while. And like in, in the, this brown crust appears around the meat just on the first few days of drying, that protects it from any outside elements. Like, though, it, though this meat, it can never rot. Oxygen is our enemy in all of this. Ah, uh, yeah. Since, yeah, since uh, there's so much oil in the meat, and if oil gets, gets oxygen, it goes rancid. So, yes, with this brown crust, you can keep it for a very long time. 
like we're talking about years in the right environment. But as soon as you cut it open, then the clock starts ticking. Ah, I see. And like we need, if we open it, we need to keep it air sealed. Okay, that's interesting. How many other people or families or companies are doing this? Well, there are some. Like, but it's hard for me to say exactly since, like, I would say we are the only ones who are doing this on a professional level. Mm. Then there are maybe four or five others who are doing this on semi-professional level. But they are, like, coming, going, coming, and going. But, but then there are many others who just buy one shark to prepare them for themselves. Really? Yes. Do the sharks come from nearby waters or are they actually caught in Greenland and like brought here? In, in nearby waters. Okay. But we don't, they're not being fished. All our sharks are accidental bycats. Really? Yeah. So in a way then, it's... It's kind of like ethical and conserving. Oh, yes. Like we have, well, like, of course, sharks are endangered and that's terrible. But I would say our hands are, are clean. Ah, and if people don't know, when you say bycatch, that means the fishermen were fishing for something else. And when they brought in their catch, one of these sharks was in there and they hadn't intended to catch them. Yeah, correct. Uh-huh. And yeah, and we are always very clear about that. All our sharks are accidentally caught. And sure, sometimes we get a bit of heat because like shark, it's all controversially, there is a controversial around them. But like, we are like using, well, this animal that would just be thrown away if we were not using it. Well, like in other countries, like all, well, all our neighboring Atlantic countries are accidentally catching this shark, but have absolutely no use for it. So they're just thrown away. And because of the toxicity. Yeah. Ah, I see. Interesting. Yeah, of course, it's controversial. I mean, also people hear about like shark fin soup over by like China and Japan and think like that is very horrible. And that is. Yes, it is. Um, but this makes a lot of sense. I would think, too, even though it's your family business, you know, you could do anything, right, in life. Like, I would think you must really have a love and appreciation for this work if you're going to be doing it, huh? Oh, totally, yes. <laughs> like, I'm born and raised around this. Ah. Like, like in the tourism, like... I was assisting my father with tours when I was six years old. Really? Yeah. And like in, around that time, like in a shark, like it was my job to put lids on the jars that we were selling. And like, it was never work. It was just part of my obligation. How old were you when you first ate it? Well, we actually have a tradition in our family that this is the first solid food we eat when we are toddlers, around six months old. No way, wow. Yeah. And toddlers actually love this. Really? Um, uh, do you pronounce it hakarl? Haukarl. Yeah. Haukarl. Yes. Okay, that is, that is really incredible. I was curious about that, actually. 
even historically. So now, obviously, people like myself come and it's something we're not familiar with and we try like a little bite and often chase it with something very strong, right? But were people um, in older times or even today consuming it as like the main portion of a meal, like in big portions? No, it, it was never like a, like a eating as a meal. Okay. Since it has, the meat, this meat, it is too nutritious. It has too much of proteins, fatty acids, and the minerals for a body to handle it as a meal. Oh, so what, what, will you get like an upset stomach or something if you ate too much? Well, yes. <laughs> but if, like if you would eat, eat it as a meal, like that much of fatty acids could destroy the liver and, and your kidneys. Oh boy. But you'll probably be lucky that if, if the stomach would reject all those proteins I Before see. that happens. <laughs> and yeah, I'm like talking around the bushes. Yeah, yeah, understand. Using nice words for it. <laughs> yeah, so we only eat it as a delicacy. I see. Like, and like uh, we just eat like, like maybe three, five cubes at a time. Uh, are there certain times when you would have it, like a celebration or a holiday or just any time? Have you heard of the... The season that we have here, Forri. No. Well, Forri is one of the old months before we took up January, February and that stuff. Yeah. It's like circa the last two weeks in January and first two weeks in February. And during this season, we eat traditional meals. There's, this is like a big thing. Like families come together, settlements come together. There's like a great buffet and entertainment. And when you're having a traditional meal, this is like a must-have side dish. And like, sure, now we eat it because, well, we like the taste. But in the past, well, people would eat it combined with other food or after a meal, like they would put it in skir and, and oatmeal and, and more. And throughout the centuries, like our tradition to preserve the, the meat was to make it sour. Put it in a sour liquid, there it will be kept for more than a year with no problem. But that would make the, the, our, our food have a very low pH level. Well, this shark has an extremely high pH level, so you would like eat this shark meat to just balance out the stomach. So your meal would be the correct pH level for you. Oh, like a digestive almost. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. And for, again, people listening, I didn't know, but skier is like a, almost like a sour, thick yogurt. Yes. It's delicious. Like some, like it's often advertised in other countries as, as skier yogurt. Yeah. That's just wrong. <laughs> like it has nothing to do with yogurt, or although both are dairy product. But like it's often called skier yogurt. So others would like, ah, it's like, yeah, it's similar to, to, yo to yogurt. I see. What else would you have during that 
sort of holiday festival season that's traditional? Well, my favorite thing is the burnt sipset. Oh. It's delicious. Is it like a pate? Like a jellied almost like, no? Yeah, you can make this jelly thing with the, from the, those hat. There is like two ways. I have to just eat the, the face. Or you like, yeah, like, sure. With, to, to make this, you burn, like burn the, the hat, and then you boil it before you eat it. And you often we'd like, well, crop off all the, all the meat, and then we to take the broth and put those in like basically a baking form. And it becomes like this, this jelly dish. Yeah. Yeah. I, ha- I need to try that. I haven't. I tried the pickled well blubber the other day. Oh, yes. That was very interesting. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> it, it takes time to get used to that. How would you, if it's even possible, how would you describe the taste of the shark? Well, most often when I'm, when I'm asked to describe it inside the museum, like I always await that question since I want the people to have like this unique experience just coming from like nowhere. But if I would have to describe it, well, the easiest way for me to describe it is to compare it to the Icelandic skate, but I know that does not help many. But many Europeans compare this to a strong blue cheese. Blue cheese? Yeah. And you said skate because skate also is very, uh, has it like an ammonia type of flavor, right? That's right, yes. Yeah. Like shark and skates are like a little bit related. Both oh. are carglitz fish. And we also ferment our skate. I know they eat that, I think, in Korea also. Yes, it's a funny thing that those two cultures on the opposite side of the world came up with the same method of (laughs) making skate. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you um, ship your product? Like, I've never seen it anywhere outside of Iceland. Well, there you're right. It's only sold in Iceland. Oh, okay. Well, then I would tell listeners that you must come here and try it. I haven't had it myself. I'm going to... I think right after this. So when we are done recording, I will let people know uh, what I thought about it. But Christian, this is fascinating. And um, I was actually back home in the States when I first got this idea. I was interviewing somebody named Dr. Bill Schindler. I don't know if it's here that he came, but I think it might be. And, And since he talked to me about it, I'm like, I have to talk to somebody about this fermented shark in Iceland. So uh, it's a real pleasure to sit here with you and to learn about it. And uh, thank you for educating my listeners about this. Well, you're very welcome. And yes, everyone who's listening, are, you're welcome to, to come and meet us. Like we, ex, like we don't only explain like how we make the meat, but we also like tell you about the history around Iceland and this, this Greenland shark. And we tell you about the biology, like this is a fascinating creature. What, what um, before we sign off, what do you find most fascinating about it? Well, 
It's the, the oldest vertebrate animal on the planet. Really? It can live to be around 400 years old. What? Oh, yes. Like people talk about how turtles, how old they can be. They, they have no chance for the Greenland shark. Are they, you know, people often think of like the great white shark as this super predator, predator and there's some sharks that aren't as predatorial. Is the Greenland shark like a super predator like that? Well, yes, it's an apex predator, but there has never been a shark attack in Iceland and no record of this shark ever attacking a person. Do they eat seals? Oh, seals are an okay big part of the diet, yes. <laughs> okay. I went to, um, actually here on the peninsula, we went to see some, sne- some seals and there's a beached whale right now. Did you yes. know this? Yeah, really I've, I've been there to check it out. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a sperm whale. Ah, okay. It's, yeah, it's, it's starting to decay, and it's a little bit sad, but I guess it's also sort of a natural process, but it looks really interesting right now. Yeah, it's, it's died of natural causes and drifted to this coast. Like, it... Well, it, it had been dead for some weeks before it came to the beats. Will the sharks uh, attack in, or eat a whale? Likely not, uh, but, but this shark, it's both a hunter and a scavenger. So a dead whale, sure, yes, it would eat that. And I highly doubt it would attack a live one. Okay. Do you have to go pretty deep out into the ocean to encounter one, or will they come close to shore? This one stays away from the shore. Mm. So you can swim here with, well, you would have to worry about other things than sharks <laughs> here. <laughs> it mostly lives on about one kilometer depth. Wow. Yeah. So they have to go, well, that's, inc- that's crazy. To think then that they, when they accidentally catch them, they have to go so deep. Well, in the high winter, the surface water here gets colder than the deep. This year, it follows the cold ocean. Okay. So in a, win- in a high winter, it comes maybe around 200 meters depth. Interesting. I was f- following this one organization that tracks sharks. I guess they get tagged and then they kind of do geolocation. Um, have they ever, do you know if they've ever tracked the Greenland sharks' migration patterns? Or? Yes, but... <clears throat> Like, it's hard to, to, to track them because of this. Oh, okay. And like, those trackings, well, there are basically two types of, of trackings, short-term and long-term. Long-term tracking, well, that's, like, super expensive equipment. So it's only, like, the great white and some who are, like, have enough prestige to get that funding. The Greenland shark has often been tagged with a short-term tagging. It just shows just on what depth and what their speed is and more. And, but like those short-term taggings, they can only handle the pressure down on one kilometer depth, which like this shark often goes below that. And so a lot of tracking has gone to waste there. Ah, I see. Wow, um, well, what I'll say is, if people want to learn more, they need to come here and experience this. The room itself is, is beautiful. There's something about, 
I don't know. There's something about like nautical imagery that I really love. I grew up on Long Island in New York, and um, there's a restaurant where we're actually eating tonight in, in Sticky Shulmer, and there's like a wall of pictures of fishermen who have worked there in the harbor over the years. It's just something really beautiful about it. Yeah, you're talking about the shower pakusit. Yeah. Uh, we're going for the mussels tonight. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, so yeah, people should come here uh, both for the beauty of it and to learn and to try the shark. And I will link to, you guys have, I know, a website and I think a Facebook so people can find out more information there. And uh, yeah, thanks, Christian. This is fascinating. Well, thank you and great to have you. Cheers. Hey, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 242 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one with Christian. I had such wonderful experiences in Iceland, and this was certainly a unique one that I will never forget. I definitely recommend you go there and try it. You can try the shark in restaurants and in cafes and things like that, but the museum feels really special. It's not very expensive to go there and tour it, and then you get to I guess have as much shark as you want uh, within the limits that your body can handle. Uh, and it's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, can't think of anything like that here in the States, really, uh, or anywhere that I've traveled. We did mention the skate and how that's similar to, to Korea. But yeah, cool stuff. Again, hopefully I'll have some people from Iceland on remotely. But otherwise, I got a bunch of stuff planned here in the States. And now we're thinking ahead to where do we go next? Do you have a suggestion or a place I should go? Reach out to me. Send me a DM on Facebook or Instagram or shoot me an email at thevoyagesoftimfetter at gmail.com. It felt so wonderful to reconnect with travelers and like-minded people again on this trip. So I want to keep that going. So reach out. Okay, signing off for now, everybody. As always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very very soon.